straight talk about the issues you care about the most. It's LaVise Dinkleville, Empowerment for the Culture. Now, your hosts, Dr. Will LaVise and Dr. Eric Claville. Hi, I'm Will LaVise. He's Eric Claville. You're tuning into LaVise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective, because it's like that, and that's the way it is. So let's get right to it with this show, Black Tax, Environmental Racism. Another segment in our series on the black taxes is dealing with all of the types of additional obstacles that uh, black people have to deal with being Americans and trying to navigate American society. And with environmental racism, you said that compared to white Americans, black and brown and indigenous people in America tend to live in areas where there are more environmental hazards. Uh, hazards such as poor air quality, contaminated water, and damage to buildings and to land. Now, is this a coincidence? Because black and brown and indigenous people uh, are disproportionately poor in America? Or is there something else that's more intentional going on? So those who believe in environmental racism say that there's no coincidence here at all, that it is intentional and it's a consequence of unjust policies. So environmental racism is a type of environmental injustice that is race-based. So we're gonna talk about this. We're gonna say, you know, what is what are the reasons behind it? What are the impact of it? And what are some of the solutions yeah. that are actually out there that people are doing and, and trying to do? But uh, Claville, this issue and of environmental racism again, is something that uh, when you start to really understand, for example, the high level of homicides that are going on in cities right now across yeah. America, when you start to start looking at, well, why are people behaving in a way that they're behaving? One of the things that you got to look at is environment. What are the conditions that are triggering and leading to the kinds of behaviors. And if you put people in poor conditions, poor health, poor breathing, which has an impact on mental development and all kinds of other things, some of these behaviors are in fact predictable. And so this is a lot of what environmental racism gets at. What are these intentional policies that are in place that creates these conditions that leads to what are really predictable behaviors? You know, Will, you bring up a very important point because a lot of what we see is uh, predicated on the environment that we're in. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's the physical environment, whether it's a home environment, our school environment, our friend environment, our inner circle, uh, the circle around us, it really impacts who we become, both as a an individual. It affects our, our trajectory in life. Right. It affects our educational attainment. It affects everything. You know, that, that, that we are. And when you talk about environment, the air we breathe, the water we drink, even to the paint, the lead that's in the paint in our homes mm. and the lead that's on our toys that are imported from other countries or that we actually use as well until we outlaw it. Uh, or not outlaw it, but creative protectionisms, which I like to call regulations. A lot of people believe regulations are there to box us in, but I actually call them, you know, again, they're there to help us, right? right. To regulate that which is bad for that which is good. But I want to give a quick definition 
and this is a Wikipedia definition, about environmental racism. It says environmental racism is a concept in the environmental justice movement, which developed in the United States and abroad throughout the 70s and the 80s. It says it's a term that's used to describe environmental injustice that occurs within a racialized context, both in practice and in policy. Right. Practice and in policy. And when we talk about how white things are as they are, keep in mind, you know, we look at the history, we look at the law, the policy, the politics around it that created it. We look at the outcome, both short-term, long-term effect, and we also look at the behavior in the people. So it's very important for us to understand that even from the beginning of this country, when we look at the Native Americans and Native peoples, they were, their fertile lands were taken from them, either by uh, contracts that that were not good uh, for them uh, or by the gun. You know, keep in mind, we talk about how, you know, Code 45 and Smith and Wesson won the West. Well, there's a reason why, you know, it won the West because it was a, you know, there were lands that, that, that the Native Americans fought for. But at the end of the day, they were pushed to parts of our country that were not desirable. Right. Uh, to the point where there is a, uh, for, our, for our listeners, if you look at the history of the Osage Native Americans, uh, the chiefs, a very, it's a beautiful history, but it's a terrible history as well. Uh, which a lot of Native American histories are. But if you look at that history, the chief at the time in the Osage Native American where they actually settled on land that was actually uh, producing oil, which created wealth for them. He said it was land that was rocky, that was hilly, and he made a statement. He said, let us settle in this area because, quote, unquote, the white man will find it not desirable because they have been moved from land to land, place to place. Exactly. You know, so when you put that into context, I just want to take that statement, the historical that statement, the historical statement, and let's apply it across the board. If you look in every community, you know, there's a uh, old we talk about old school hip hop. You know, there's a there's a ghetto in every community. That's that too short. You know, <laughs> you had to start calling it ghetto. You know, there's a ghetto in every community. And that ghetto is basically that undesirable area in our cities and our localities that we don't want to put the best and the brightest in, but we want to put the non-desirables in, right? So when you take a look at our ghettos, you know, it's, it's the streets are poor, the drainage is poor, the water quality is poor, the housing is poor, the schools are poor. You even have to the point where we, just, where we start to create industries. You have chemical plants, such as in Cancer Alley out of Louisiana, where I'm from. You have trash dumps, right? You have all these things that create non-desirable areas to live that impact us. So I want us to understand when we talk about environmental racism, we have to look at it under environmental injustice. We also have to look at it as history and where we are now. Uh, You make an excellent point about what happened with uh, native lands. And so you are being, you're under siege, you're under attack, and you settle on the land that is believed to be less desirable so we can be able to be in peace in this land and try to make a living. And then what happens is that native lands have often become the places for radioactive dump and nuclear waste. And so you mentioned um, Benton Harbor, you mentioned, well, actually you mentioned um, Cancer Alley down in New Orleans and Baton Rouge, the uh, area. There are several different examples like that. 
to your point of areas where folks are forced to live that either undesirable or, in fact, after they are relegated to certain areas, those become the dumping grounds for the areas for for uh, for pollutants. So we'll give an example. Some of the examples of um, environmental racism that that not only in history but are existing now. People will be familiar with uh, what happened in Flint, Michigan, with the lead poured uh, lead dumped in the, in the water. Well, it's also that's also an issue in Benton Harbor, Michigan. So deteriorating uh, pipes uh, and governments being familiar with the problems but not doing the right things as necessary to uh, fix these problems because, again, these are uh, people who are, are poor, the people of color. They're, as you said, considered less desirable. You have a situation back in the 1970s, another example in Albany. Uh, one of the other issues that has been these projects under the under the umbrella of urban renewal, where the highway systems were built or whole communities, black communities, uh, re essentially destroyed, right, with the promise of we're going to put you together better housing, better living conditions for you. But in fact, building houses near freeways. So now people are now exposed to the exhaust coming down the highway, like in Albany, Interstate 787, now living along Interstate 787 and coming and being exposed to the exhaust that comes out of cars. Um, I see that all the time in the Philadelphia area, coming through Chester, PA, coming down, uh, you know, 95 and, you know, and 76, coming into the areas. You see these houses along the freeway. You say, how can folks live and prosper in these kind of conditions? You mentioned Cancer Alley. That's a 85-mile stretch. Uh, along the Mississippi River, down New Orleans, Baton Rouge, lined with oil refineries and uh, petrochemical plants. Yeah. High levels of cancer, some of the highest levels of cancer. And in these areas, the residents are majority black. So they have 50 times more, sources say 50 times more likely to develop cancer than the average American yeah. in that area. In D.C., in the nation's capital, <laughs> you have some of the largest trash transfer stations are located where predominantly black communities in ward five yeah so you get the wonder go ahead so so you get to wondering uh why is these situations all these different parts of the country why are these similar circumstances existing where they are people of color or predominantly poor people because there are some situations like in um, in West Virginia and in other in different places where poor whites are subjected to these kinds of conditions as well, but there's a studies and countless studies have shown the correlation between neighborhoods that, for example, have been redlined, and how the neighborhoods that were redlined, meaning blacks were specifically relegated to certain areas of the community, and these are some of the same communities that have environmental conditions that are basically on bordering on being inhuman. So clearly there is, when you talk about policy and practice, you're talking about intentional and race-based, intentional and race-based, because these policies are affecting people of color and where they live. Why? In the areas when you found lead in, 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 in the water, in predominantly white areas, government mobilizes itself to fix that problem. But when they're in predominantly black and poor communities, 
you have a strikingly different uh, result. And because people don't have the political clout, they don't have the resources to really fight back, the situation persists. Absolutely. Well, I want to, you ask yourself, why did this exist? I want to read in, uh, an excerpt from an article, a study from the Central Foundation from 2020. And it talked about, basically this was looking at why communities um, are, that suffer from environmental racism are hit hardest by COVID-19. Hmm. And it, it states, this excerpt states that environmental racism is inseparable from racial segregation. Residential segregation, which in itself a result of indi individual and systemic racism, including public policy choices at every level of government and exclusionary choices by financial actors, means that people of color are often concentrated in neighborhoods right. that, have, that have frequently been disempowered, both politically and financially. For these reasons and more, Neighborhoods with large non-white populations have historically seen lower property values, meaning that the land in those areas are cheaper for industrial actors that can acquire these lands, leading to greater pollution. At the same time, policy choices have acted alongside financial factors to drive these dangerous uses toward communities of color right. and away from wealthier, whiter neighborhoods thanks to the imbalance of political power. So, Will, and again, that's just an excerpt from that particular article and study. Again, that's the Central Foundation um, article from uh, 2020, May 19, 2020, entitled Environmental Racism Has Left Black Communities Especially Vulnerable to COVID-19. You know, there's a lot to, uh, it's, it's, it's only a paragraph and a half, but there's a lot to unpack from that. Because what that shows us is that these things go hand in hand. Racial segregation and environmental racism goes hand in hand. And it creates this bevy of imbalance politically, financially, environmentally. And it causes you, just, just as you stated, even with the highway system, and I didn't, I didn't even think about that until you just said, you got cars zooming by, exhaust that's coming oh, yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and before the pollution policy, as far as litter policy goes, trash was being dumped <laughs> into these communities. Bottles, bags, and things of that nature. As a matter of fact, we still see in some areas where you have bags of trash that's dumped underneath interstates, and those are usually in black people. Right. You know, well, well, you know, the interesting thing, I mean, in, in the article that you cite is that the EPA itself, in 2018, has a study that revealed that national, state, county levels, all levels, black, brown, indigenous, and other people of color disproportionately much more exposed to particulate matter. Hmm. Now, particulate matter, what is that? Air pollution consisting of automobile fumes, smog, soot, oil smoke, ash, and construction dust. They are more prevalent in, in communities of color than white people are exposed to it. So what are the effects of this? So when you see health disparities where black children have much higher levels of asthma than other children, it's because of this exposure. There's likely that there's a correlation, exposure to the particulate matter, right? And so this is the EPA. This is the EPA during the Trump administration. This is 2018. So 
this is this at this point, there's no question of whether this is a real situation, this is a reality. This is very much a real situation. And so when you start looking at the effects of it, what starts happening? Well, let's get it down to the basic level of a child, right? Trying to function in school who has been exposed to lead poisoning. Lead has an impact on mental development. Let's get it down to the level of a child who's struggling with asthma, trying to function in school. How are you going to be able to function in school under those kinds of conditions? If you're already disproportionately poor, which is going to have an impact likely on um, have you eaten right while you're sitting in this classroom? Are you still hungry? Are you getting the proper nutrition? So if you're not getting the proper nutrition, you're already in a stressful situation that, that comes as a result of poverty. Probably the home, even if there's a tremendous amount of love in the home, might be a tremendous, likely a tremendous amount of struggle and stress going on in the home. Right. And then you're going out into your environment, which is having an impact on your very ability to breathe or your ability to cognitive, cognitively be able to function, right, on a high level. And now you're trying to sit in the classroom and you're trying to study and you're trying to develop. And we're telling this child that education is the key to upward mobility. Right. You putting a child in a position of failure and attacking them at all corners, at all angles, making it almost impossible for them to be able to thrive and achieve in this kind of situation. This is environmental racism. So then when that same child now as they're getting older and falling behind in school and losing a sense of hope and getting more and more desperate because of their impoverished situation, starts making decisions, emotional decisions, and they're not even fully developed emotionally, intellectually, and start making decisions like putting a legal gun in their hand and trying to find respect and esteem and all of these other kinds of ways that lead nothing to more than to self-destruction and community destruction, you begin to understand, okay, what are the factors that's contributing to why, for example, we're experiencing a high homicide rate in some of these same communities? It's all of these different factors coming to play on a young person's life that's trying to go out into a world that is constantly, in a lot of ways, the very air that he's breathing, the very air that she's breathing is toxic to them. Air, the very basic of, of life, of being able to sustain life and being able to walk around and be alive, that air is toxic to them. You're putting a person under a tremendous amount of pressure and then turn it around. And when they don't act right, what we say is right, we turn around and blame them for not acting right. Yeah. Yet we created an environment that makes it almost impossible without some major, major intervention. It makes it almost impossible for them to act, quote unquote, right. You know, Will, I, I want to bring out a study that really highlights exactly what you're saying. So this is a sociology study. It's called Reading Environmental Racism. The uh, author on this particular study is Bullard, uh, 2007. All right. It says that the statistic on environmental racism is shocking. Research shows that it pervades all aspects mm. of African-Americans' lives. Environmentally unsound housing, schools with asbestos problems, facilities and playgrounds with lead right. paint. Right. All right? 
schools. We're not even talking about houses, schools, all right? Now, this also states that a 20-year comparative study led by sociologist Robert Bullock determined, quote, race to be more important than socioeconomic status in predicting the location of the nation's commercial hazardous waste facilities, okay? The nation's had commercial hazardous waste facilities, uh, 2007. His research also found, for example, that African-American children are five times more likely, five times more likely to have lead poisoning, the leading environmental health threat for children, than their Caucasian counterparts, Mm. and that a disproportionate number of people of color reside in areas with hazardous waste facilities. So these sociologists uh, with the project, they examined how environmental racism addressed the long-term cleanup of environmental disasters caused at that time by Hurricane Katrina. But I think you can apply this across the board, right? Because it's not like Hurricane Katrina cleanup solved all the cleanup problems of environmental issues. If that was the case, Flint, Michigan would have never happened, hmm. right? Right. So to your point, five times more likely, that is unfathomable. That is, think about the impact of that. And to your point, lead is the number one determinant, number one determinant, health threat to children, the number one. So if you're impacted by lead at an early age and it impacts your developmental status, you're impacted by asbestos, which basically is a death sentence, okay, where you uh, develop this, this, this disease, this cancer that basically destroys your lung capacity. So your, right. your ability, your, your longevity of life, and your ability for your highest earning years. Keep in mind, your highest level of earning year, from 26 really to, to 60, I mean 25 to 60, uh-huh. that's it. Sometimes, well, it used to be 25 to 55, but now 25 to 60 people are working longer, maybe even 65 now. Right. But, but that's it. That's all we have for our highest earning capacity until life, chance, and opportunity, and health and challenges happen to us, right? So what does that mean for us moving forward? Well, that means that we have an issue. We have a national crisis. We have another issue where we understand what the problem is. Now it's time to move toward the solution. So what are those solutions? Number one, I want to start with recognizing the areas in which we operate. Communities have to, local communities, our state and our federal um, communities have to under, have to recognize and listen. We are responsible for this either through policy, practice, or being mm-hmm. ignoring it, right? You can't be ignorant of it because you knew about it. You created policy, you protected it. Uh, studies have shown, we pointed out a couple of studies just now, and then there are many, many, many others. But we have to, first of all, recognize it. Once we recognize that there is the issue, now we have to create policy to correct it. So this is not complicated, right? We don't want to complicate Simply, if we create a policy to disenfranchise and disempower communities of color, which cause them to have unsafe housing, unsound schools, um, issues in their environment, then we create policies to actually give them the power not to be disenfranchised, Hmm. not to create those issues, not to create um, a a community or an environment that is downright just dangerous for any human being. So we create policy to clean it up. We create policies to do better. We create policies to impact their lives positively. In other words, 
simply remove those stumbling blocks. Now, it's on the individual to achieve whatever level and fulfill their destiny, their potential. But what we can do as a society and as individuals is, number one, not to place stumbling blocks for them to develop and also to remove those that were placed. Policy helps us through regulations. But the challenge of that is, is that you're going at the core problem of racism, which is racism says that there's a pecking order, there's a tier, there's a, 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 a um, how do, what's the word I want to use? Well, I'll stick with pecking order, where based on the, your skin color, this is where you are to remain in society. And this is what the, the types of rights and privileges that you get. And so if you don't dismantle racism, you don't dismantle that mindset that because of somebody's skin color being white, that they have more privileges and more advantages than other people, you're not going to get to those policy changes. You know, one of the things in the EPA study identified that even in upwardly mobile black communities, even in black communities where there's wealth, the air quality is still at a much more dangerous and hazardous level than it is for white communities of equal economic uh, uh, levels. So what is that telling you? That's telling you that this is a situation that is about this still belief of racism, of white supremacy, that certain people, because of the color of his skin, are going to be allowed to have life and liberty and pursuit of happiness at a different level than other people. So it's difficult if you don't attack racism in the mix of all of this, I don't see how you're ever going to be able to alleviate and change this. When we were working on the docu-film series, The Skin You're In, one of the areas we looked at was in Newport News, the east end of Newport News. Those of you are familiar from the areas you are, uh, Claville, you know that southeast area of the city is where predominantly black, historically black community has been. And in that area, there are these coal stacks on the side along the, the, the freeway, the highway over there. And the air would blow still, over still and it's still there. And the soot, you would see soot on people's stoops, soot on people's uh, uh, um, uh, windows and, and rooftops, yeah. right? And so why is it that the coal stacks and why is it that this community is allowed to, this is the place to keep the stuff. And then you have a community right adjacent to it on the other side of the highway. Well, as the wind blows, blows, right. And so now, but what happens is as Newport News has discussed, wanted to redevelop that area because of the waterfront that's down there and waterfronts being prime real estate, now you begin to have a discussion. What do you think that discussion is going to be that's going to happen? Do you think they're going to look at the possibility of moving those stacks and relocating them somewhere else so that people of a different economic level and of a different skin color could live down there and pursue life, liberty, and happiness? Absolutely. They're not going to live down there. The only way you're going to be able to develop that. So then why is it that it takes that kind of infusion, that kind of change in order to get an area cleaned up. You look at what's happening with gentrification. These areas that were previously seen as undesirable, 
all of a sudden, infusion of funds starts going into the area, development, capital investment to do the cleanup that's necessary so that a different hue, a different color of people can now live in this area as the property values rise and then they are able to purchase the home. So we can talk about policy and we know the kind of policies that should be in place that put everyone on an equal playing field. But the problem is if you don't first, and in the midst of all of that, address the racism, address this notion from our policy makers who still believe in practice that there are certain people who deserve certain privileges in society over others based on their skin color, you're not going to get the change. Otherwise, in these communities that are black, predominantly black and upwardly mobile, you wouldn't still have the same results as far as air quality and environmental risk. So racism, our inability to really confront and be honest about racism remains at the root of much of this and much of the equality and inequity that's going on in our society. And we've got to dismantle it if we want true change. Absolutely. Well, Will, again, you know, we're we're not going to solve every problem uh, during our show, but at least we can bring it to light and start mm-hmm. the discussion about what solutions we need. But we want to thank everyone for, again, tuning in to this segment of Lovisa and Coville. Keep in mind, you can view our past segments uh, on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Like, share, follow, and let us know how we're doing. And until next time, we'll see you then, because that's the way it is. Be well. Thanks for listening to another episode of La Vista and Claville. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. For information or to connect with La Vista and Claville, check out our website at www.lavisteclaville.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to At the La Vista and Claville on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. This has been the latest episode of La Vista and Claville.